This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today we're pleased to welcome on Matt Burke with Fairway America. Thanks for very much for being on with us today, Matt. Thanks for having me, Alex. Great. Well, uh, as always, you know, when we get these things started, I like to give our guests a little bit of an opportunity to give themselves, you know, kind of a, uh, a general background in what they do. And then, you know, right after you give your background, let's just go ahead and hop into it. Sure. Yeah, I've... Um been in the alternative investment space for 30 plus years now. I, I started Fairway in uh, 1992 and we've done private money lending and managed a number of private real estate uh, 506 Reg D funds for years. We've helped people set those funds up. We have another company, Veribus, that administers the uh, accounting work for those funds. So I'd say pretty deep background and experience in the alternative real estate investment space. And um, yeah, been doing it uh, hard to believe, Alex, but three decades at this point. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, kind of what we talked about is the scalability of of these things and people wanting to put together, um, you know, different types of investment structures. So, uh, you know, maybe kind of give us the 30,000 foot view of, you know, in general, what that kind of means to you as far as people putting things together, because there's a lot of people that come to us and, you know, we have experience on the side of, you know, people that, you know, scale say, Hey, you know, I'm doing single family and then, okay, I want to get into multifamily. And then once I get to multifamily, then it's like, okay, great. What do I do from here? Um, So that's kind of, you know, where, you know, you step in with, you know, what you do. So give us an idea of that and then we'll go from there. Yeah, I think on uh, where we really help people is on the capital structure side, more so than the specific investment strategy. So I think one of the things I've always liked about real estate, Alex, is there's there's almost an infinite number of ways to make money in real estate or real estate asset based investments. Right. So there's people that lend, you know, short term, long term. There's people that buy existing notes. You know, and trade those notes, people to buy discounted notes, there's people to buy property directly. And then when you buy property directly, there's all kinds of different strategies, single family, multifamily, commercial, storage, right? So everybody's got a an angle or a way that they do it. I think then how they do it is either typically one deal at a time. So they raise capital from investors to put into a specific transaction either with one investor, one transaction, or multiple investors, one transaction, which I would call a syndication, you know, or more what happens for some of those people is they reach a certain point where they want to start doing it in a pooled fund format, where, where they're not placing investors in one specific deal, they're buying multiple deals inside of a fund entity that they manage and have discretion over, and that is where we really get involved with people is when they want to make that leap from doing it one deal at a time in in a syndicated format to doing it in a pooled fund format. So yeah, and that's we help people. We help people set those up. 
Yeah, and that's really kind of the interesting aspect of real estate and what I really have talked to a lot of different people about is that, you know, you get bit by the bug, if you will, in the single family space and you see how, you know, tangible and and I always find it kind of disingenuous that people would consider real estate an alternative asset by any stretch of the yeah. imagination. You know, this is, if anything, it's one of like the original assets, you know, owning land yeah. and that has really kind of been the crux of what is, you know, built empires over the years is acquisition of, of, of real estate. And, you know, people kind of get, you know, into that realm saying, okay, great. Well, you know, I don't have to have a, you know, a, a mathematics degree from MIT to figure out, okay, this makes sense. The numbers are generally enough. You know, I buy it for X, it cash flows for X. Let me do that. Okay. Well, there's a lot of work in a, in a single family home. Well, let's, let's get into maybe doing more of a portfolio aspect. You're doing commercial multifamily. Commercial multifamily is great, but then you get to a certain level and then you want to scale from there. And then that's really kind of what we haven't covered is setting up some type of fund. Now, you know, for people that maybe, you know, have some tangential exposure to it, or, you know, they're really kind of in that syndicated space where they're saying, you know what, I've done a few of these different offerings and I'm really looking to, you know, scale to the next step is really kind of the pooled asset or the pooled fund arena, which is kind of where you get involved, you know, with what Veravest does and what Fairway America, you know, kind of, you know, together kind of have, uh, you know, championed. So let's kind of get into that. You know, it's really what I wanted to talk to you about is, is how does that really kind of play into that next, you know, again, logic be what it is for everyone. Everyone has a different opinion of what logical is, but, you know, kind of the next general step from people going, okay, I'm syndicating, deal to deal, what does that look like? Really, what are the differences and what do people have to look out for when it goes for making that step? Yeah, I mean, I get that question a lot around, you know, am I ready for a fund? Should I set one up? Should I not? Why should I do it or not do it? What are what are the advantages and disadvantages? And there's then there's both from the manager's perspective and then from an investor's perspective, right? But I'd say from starting from a manager perspective, um, when people reach a certain level of where they have enough deal flow and enough capacity to do more, often capital becomes a constraint. And doing deals one at a time is very difficult in a lot of ways because you're, not the least of which, is you have time constraints. Right? You've got a closing date you've got to meet, and you got to raise X number of dollars by you know Y date, and there's a lot of pressure to do that. So people feel like at some point, if I have a pool investment fund, I can raise the capital where I have the money pre-committed into the fund. I know I've got the money sitting there. Then it makes it easier for me to go out and negotiate you know, the acquisition of a particular piece of property to be able to do it that way. So I, I'd say there's trade-offs, Alex, for both the manager and the investor to a fund. And I could give you a, a list and we're happy to talk about it today is you know, what are the pros and cons of a fund versus doing it one deal at a time, both from a manager and an investor perspective? The obvious one from an investor perspective in a fund is it's more diversified, right? If you come into one deal and that deal doesn't do very well, you have the entire exposure of that one transaction. In a pooled fund format, you get exposure to all of the assets of the fund, however many there are. Um, and I'd say in a fund from an investor perspective, you're really you have to be very, very conscious of the picking the jockey, right? Because in a, from an investor perspective, when you're doing one deal at a time, you can kind of pick and choose and say yes or no. You like the characteristics of that property, that deal, or you don't. Whereas in a fund, you don't get to choose as an investor, right? You're putting your money with that manager and then you're giving the manager control and authority to pick and choose the investments for that vehicle. 
So lots of trade-offs, lots of positives and negatives on either side. I don't personally, Alex thinks one is inherently any better than the other. They're just different with different considerations and characteristics. Sure. So let's look at it from the investor side real quick. So, you know, the easy thing for people to understand is, okay, I'm investing into an individual real estate syndication. They're going to buy, um, you know, Moss Oak apartment building. Okay, great. I see the area that it's in. I see, you know, yep. what the depreciation schedules are. I see all these different kinds of things for that one specific asset. And yeah, you are, you know, kind of tying yourself to the performance of that one particular asset. If, something happens, yeah, you have the, you know, the the aspects of um, diversification are kind of, of lost with that, because although you do have certain aspects of diversification, it's one asset. Now, when it comes to investing in a pooled investment fund, okay, great. So I've put my money into this. Now, I guess it kind of gets into two, the, the question I'm getting at is kind of two parts. So the pooled investment fund, are they going in and is this kind of different from fund to fund and, you know, alludicate to that, but is it going to be where they're saying, okay, well now I have all this capital that I've raised. Are they going out and then plugging in as like a partial partner into individual, let's say, and, and again, real estate kind of being the focus of this, are they plugging into like, let's say large portions of in other people's individual deals? Are they going out and saying, Hey, I'm going to take down this one. I'm taking down another one. And then kind of bringing in these wholly owned assets into the pool or can it kind of be a mixture of both? Yeah, it's, it's it can be either. It can be both. Um, it depends on the fund and it depends on the the mandate of that fund. So I think from an investor perspective, that's one thing an investor wants to be very conscious about is, you know, what it, what does do the documents allow the manager to do or not do? inside that fund. So there's nothing inherently that prevents a manager from doing either of those scenarios or even both inside the same vehicle. It all depends on how they drafted those documents. So if yeah. I'm an investor and I want, if I'm comfortable with a manager who's taking little slugs of a bunch of deals and not managing them directly themselves, you know, then that's fine. But I'd say a lot of managers are, they're more vertically integrated and they're doing the whole thing. Right. So they they set up a fund, they're raising money from investors and they, their company is going to be the one that buys the property in its totality. And the fund owns 100 percent of that asset and maybe 10 assets or 12 assets. Right. And in other cases, the fund might buy only a percentage interest in the asset. And then that particular assets being managed by some other manager and they're kind of along for the ride as an LP. It, it could be either. Okay, gotcha. And I'm assuming, and it kind of, I guess, the next thing is kind of boils down to money. You know, we mentioned, uh, you know, in the beginning of this, the preface being, okay, well, you know, raising capital with a deadline can be tough. Now, raising capital in and of itself can be tough um, as well. You yeah, know, yeah. raising it's raising money. Um, but when you start talking about, you know, the scale that you would need for a pooled investment fund, well, that means that they're gonna you know, to get outside just being, you know, just a, a general syndication, you know, you have to raise enough money for multiple deals. So yep. when you're talking about raising that much capital, you know, is that typically something where they're going to come in initially and say, hey, we need to, instead of raising, you know, 10, 15 million, are they, you know, where does, where does the kind of, where does the capital kind of start? Is it, you know, people, you know, it's like 50 million kind of the barrier to entry this? Is it 25? Is that a hundred? Where do these things typically yeah. start or is it market specific or is it a spectrum like everything with investing? I would say it's it's more asset type specific than market specific. I mean, it, it, it depends on the, the nature of the assets. I mean, we've seen plenty of funds that are very successful with as little as five or $10 million. 
right? And some would require 50 or 100. But I'll give you an example, Alex. If if someone's buying, let's say the strategy is to buy single family homes and to fix them up, rehab them and flip them for a profit as quickly as possible. Okay, and you're doing that in the Southeast you know, United States. Well, if the average purchase price is, you know, two or $300,000 and you can get, you know, two thirds debt, one third equity, and you're flipping them every six months, 5 million bucks goes a long way, sure. right? Because it's only $100,000 per deal and you're getting your money back and you're recycling that money very quickly. So you don't need a huge fund in order to be very successful in a strategy like that. Now, on the other hand, if you're buying um, large industrial facilities that cost 40 or $50 million each, Right. And you can borrow, you know, 65 percent. That means your average equity checks 10 or 15 million. You want to do three assets. Well, now you got to be at 50 million just to sort of be in the game. So it it really depends on the type of assets that they're buying, the size of those assets, how long they're holding those assets and the velocity of of that. So that's a big part of what we do when we're working with managers is talk through with them. All right. Based on the strategy, they, they generally will come to us with a strategy. Right. We're not telling them what they should be doing. They already have a business that does that. They just want to set up a vehicle to do it. So we try to help them structure that vehicle in the most conducive possible way to maximize, you know, the the chances of being successful on whatever their their business in. And again, if I'm putting my investor hat on, an investor then, if they're thinking, well, what kind of assets do I like? What part of the country do I want to be in? How big does the manager? I mean, an investor can go through this whole progression of things that they're considering. And after they do that, Alex, there's a huge variety of funds out across the United States of managers doing practically everything you can think of from distressed debt to single family, to multifamily, to storage, industrial, hospitality, you name it, there's a fund around it somewhere. Yeah, no. And I think that's a good point because the, the preface to this, uh, you know, interview kind of was centered on commercial real estate. But I think the broader picture that you just illustrated is that the 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 fund the funds asset the funds can be kind of asset agnostic, if you will. You know, coming into it saying, okay, great. The you know fund manager, and if I'm using any incorrect terms, correct me in a second, but you know, the sure. fund manager comes in with the idea, you know, they're the you know, the, the CEO, if you will, of this kind of guiding the ship. And they say, okay, you know, I've had great success with, you know, buying and flipping these homes. People have invested with me. I have a big pool of people that will lend me money at the drop of a hat. I say, I got something. Okay, great. Well, instead of going through that rigmarole of, of all that, say, okay, well, let me just have the capital on hand, go out and do these things. So my deal flow velocity increases the, you know, and when velocity increases, profits can typically increase because you turn these things over. You know, if you're flipping houses, you're not making money until you sell the thing. So being able to do those at a faster pace when you don't have to have those individual conversations, call this person, call that person, you have the money, you can deploy it. And again, extrapolate that to anything. You could be buying businesses, you could be buying accounts receivable, debt, commercial debt, anything you know, can really kind of work in this structure, which I didn't necessarily kind of think of when, you know, we initially had this conversation, but these funds, you know, a, you know, and again, I always come from the the lens of real estate. That's a lot of what we do, but a pooled investment fund is just that it can be a pooled investment fund of really anything, you know, as long that's as right. it's illegal, you know, you're not going out and buying things that, you know, are not legal to own in an investment fund. If you do, you're probably not in business for very long, but um, you know, from that aspect, I think that that's definitely kind of, you know, a good thing for people to take away from is that it doesn't just have to be, you know, going single family. Now I'm a commercial real estate syndicator. Now I need a, a you know, a, a 
you know, an invest, a pooled investment fund to do it. It can be with a lot of different stuff. Now, from the aspects of, you know, when, when a fund is set up, you know, although the initial onset of these things can, again, be, you know, relatively agnostic to what the actual goal of the investing is, are they kind of tied into that? Let's say I've started a pooled investment fund because I'm, you know, the world's best house flipper. And I go out and I can do these things, Southeast United States, you know, 180 to 350,000 dollars, three twos, mid-market stuff. I can do those things all day and make 20% on every deal. If all of a sudden I say, you know what, I, you know, I just bought a cabin up in North Georgia and I think I can make a killing on mobile homes. Can you pivot within that? Or do you have to be like, are, are you tied into the directive of the documents that initially set these things up? What kind of leeway does someone have if they set something up like this? Yeah, they're, they are tied into whatever it is that they've imposed upon themselves at the outset. And material changes in strategy then would require, typically require consent of the investors. Now that said, there's nothing that prevents them in the beginning, Alex, to, to make that mandate as broad as they want. So in theory, somebody could say, I'm going to invest in any and all type of real estate, as long as it has real estate associated with it, I can invest in it. Single family, multifamily, cabin in Georgia, you know, three twos in, in the Southeast, you know, hotels in Alaska, you know, coffee shops in Minnesota, like they can make it that broad, literally, if they want to. But once you've said, I'm going to do only you know, single family houses in the state of Texas that are no greater than 3000 square feet, if that's what you put in the documents and that's what you market to investors and that's what you raise capital for, then you can't go back later and say, hey, I want to go buy, you know, a hotel in Vermont, right? You'd, you'd have, you'd, you'd be outside the mandate at that point. So nothing right. prevents you from making as broad as you want, but once you've done it, you're kind of locked into what you've, what you've committed to. Okay, gotcha. Now, when it comes to changing something like that, is a is it a hundred percent? Like, if, if you were to change it, do you have to get a hundred percent investor um, acknowledgement on that, or is it like a you know a certain ratio that you have to change something like that? It, it depends on what they. That's a choice that they also make at the onset, and generally, when they're working with counsel to create those documents, there will be a percentage that they've placed in the documents that say there's a section in there that'll talk about major decisions one of which would be to change the investment mandate. And the, and the document would say, and I'm paraphrasing, but effectively all major decisions require consent of the shareholders, either in a majority, a supermajority, you know, 100%, 75, 51. Uh, so it depends on what they put in the document, but whatever that, that original operating agreement is what would control what that percentage is. Okay, gotcha. Now there's definitely some more like structural and investment kind of um, let's say investment flow things. I have some questions on, but I kind of want to get, um, you know, kind of start from the beginning of starting these things. Cause I'm sometimes I, when I, when I talk about new things, I just kind of want to ask every question as they come up, but, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, you know, when it comes to setting one of these things up, uh, you know, I have a good amount of experience in the, you know, commercial multifamily space, you know, your typical reg D reg a, you have a PPM, you have a prospectus, you have a limited partnership agreement. It's pretty well delineated. You have, you know, the money guy that's going to sign the loan, you have a few GPs, and then you have a slew of LPs that come in in the passive position. Um, it's relatively easy for me to wrap my mind around that. And a lot of our clients as well that are in this space, they say, okay, this makes sense. This is what I kind of used to. The pooled investment structure, the pooled investment fund, um, and I was just dealing with a 
company in um, you know the the greater northeast corridor that's doing this kind of thing. Um, but again, I have a lot more exposure to that. What kind of you know functionally is different? You know, from you know setting one up, saying okay, here's you know you know I have to disclose X, Y, and Z. Um, are these under Reg D? Are they Reg A? You know, what kind of investors can you take in? And then from the investor side. Um, you know, what kind of things are you looking for when it comes to investing in one of these things as well? Is it the same kind of documents? Um, you know, are rates of return fluctuated? Are they pegged saying you have a preferred or a standard? Like, what kind of things can you expect on both sides of this? Yeah, I think the, well, the documents you described are basically what the documents are for a fund, right? You've got a PPM, you've got an operating agreement, you've got a subscription agreement. I mean, they're the fairly standard set of documents from one to the other, kind of regardless of what the investment strategy is. I think our my experience, Alex, has been that um, it's not so much I mean, having documents as table stakes, right? You have yeah. to have a set of legal documents. You need a securities council that's that's signing off on them to make sure they comply with securities law, right? But how you set it up why you make the decisions you make with respect to the, the question you ask, what is the pref? What is the split? What are the fees? Why are those the fees? And why is that the split and the pref? And how broad is the mandate? And who is my investor base when I'm raising capital? That's the part where managers who've never done this before really struggle. And frankly, that's the part where the lawyer struggles as well, because they don't view that as their job, right? The lawyer's job is to draft a set of documents that, that complies with securities law, right? But they're expecting the manager to tell them, well, what would you like the PREF to be? And the manager says, well, uh, what should the PREF be? And the lawyer says, well, it can be whatever you want it to be. It's like, <laughs> and then the manager says, well, what should it be? So the lawyer will tell you what you can do, but they don't necessarily tell you what you should, should do, do based on your strategy, who your investor base is, you know, what you're trying to achieve, the velocity of your assets, you know, that's all the part where, in my mind, that's where the art of setting these things up right in the first place comes in. And ultimately, that benefits the investor, because if you set it up properly to begin with, the manager just is going to make a lot fewer mistakes around how they set it up. I mean, it's very common that I've seen plenty of people that come to us after they already set it up. And by then, it's it's kind of too late. You, you set the thing up based on a structure that can't that is perfectly legal. But it doesn't really comport with the strategy that the person has with respect to how they, the kind of assets that they're doing, the velocity of those assets, the structure, and, and so forth. So there is a there is a bit of an art to doing it. A lot of that just comes with experience. Yeah, it's like you know moving to northern Minnesota with nothing but a uh, motorcycle, and it's like okay, yeah, we'll get you from point A to point B, but you yeah. probably should have bought a truck. And <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. functionally these things might work, but there's a better way to do this. And that's a that's a great, that's a great analogy. Do you mind if I steal that one from? I'm not oh, I, I just made it up on the spot. It's, <laughs> I, I consider it free use. So have at it. Um, but yeah, and I hear that a lot. And again, I, I always like it when I talk to people and, you know, obviously I haven't talked to anyone specifically like you, but I've talked to a lot of syndicators. I've talked to a lot of attorneys and that's a very common thread is that, you know, setting things up from the very beginning correctly, not just legally, there's a big difference between doing something correctly and legally. And the one should preface the other. What you do correctly should be legal. Um, you know, oh, it, it's kind yeah, of like I say, table stakes, man. It's it's yeah. table stakes that it needs to comply with securities law. But that's just that's table stakes. That's just gets you in the game. It yeah. doesn't mean that you did it properly. 
So from your perspective, what would you say on a very high level? Um, is it, you know, understanding your market? Is it being realistic about what you think you're going to be doing um, that kind of, again, give credence to, you know, what your rate of return should be? What are you pegging as your fees? Is that kind of something that is more analytical on just being realistic with all this kind of stuff for the new person? Because obviously, if you've done it a lot, you have basis to say, okay, well, you know, this makes sense, this works, this didn't. Um, but again, very broadly, um, what are some things that people need to look at? And I'm assuming these are kind of things that you help people with as well. Yes. And broadly, the, the fees need to be reasonable so that they're not out of market or, you know, wildly in favor of the manager, right? But they also need to be able to compensate the manager for the work that's going to need to be done in order to be able to execute on the fund in the first place. And striking that balance can be very difficult because, of course, investors push back on fees, Right. And as and they should, but they shouldn't push back beyond the point of reasonableness because it costs money to run the fund and for somebody to commit themselves, you know, to endeavoring to produce these returns for these investors in the first place. So fees is a huge, you know, piece of it. You know, I'd say matching the investment strategy to the capital structure is very important. And that often gets um misaligned when they don't really, or they're not conscious of trying to do that in the first place. Um, then I think the way in which the, uh, the the manager's understanding of their investor base, you know, who they are and how easy or difficult, and it's always more difficult than easy to, to raise money because in a pooled format, Alex, I mean, you're, it's, it's a blind pool, right? The investors don't know or see the individual assets. So they're trusting heavily in that manager. So having an understanding going in of how you expect to raise the money is very important for the manager to be able to do. And you got to tie all of those things together. It's like, I, I always, I use the analogy of it, it's a wheel, right? And it, it's, we come at it from the center of that wheel, but there's you got ask, you got legal, you have accounting, you have capital raising, you have investor relations, you have asset origination and acquisition, you have asset management. There's all these different pieces that all tie together that you have to be able to think of it holistically in order to be able to set it up to give you the best chance to, to actually make it work. Sure, yeah. And if one of those spokes is a little bit loose, I mean, you'll go down the road, but the second you hit a bump, pops out and the whole thing falls off the tracks. That, that, so, that's right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. Now, when you say capital structure, um, you know, I'm just from the perspective of what I look at normally, I'm just used to, okay, you bring money in and it gets plugged into, you know, a particular deal. When you say capital structure, maybe just again, illuminate us to a little bit. When you say that, what does that mean to you in the context of a pooled investment fund? Because, you know, I, I would assume just kind of from thinking about it, okay, the investors dump money in, the manager says, okay, great, we got enough money. Let's go execute our strategy, hopefully to a, to a good result for our clients. Yeah. So de again, depending on the asset model, is that a open-ended fund with a with a fluctuating share price and redemption mechanism? So the investors have the ability over time to request their money back and get out of it before the fund is finished? Or is it a closed-ended fund where there's a finite timeline and a, and a targeted investment period and the investor has no ability to get out of their investment until the very end of the fund. So certain types of assets are more conducive to one structure or the other. 
And again, I see people make that mistake where they don't, where they have the inappropriate structure for what it is that they're doing. So that's kind of the starting point is, you know, is it open or is it closed and why? And then once it's open or closed, then you have a whole series of decisions you have to make around uh, the various aspects of, of an open or a closed-ended fund. What is the preferred return? What is the profit split? What does the return of capital look like? What are the fees associated with it from the manager and the investor side? How and when does he invest? When, when, how long of a raise period do you have? How long of an investment period do you have? When do you have to start selling assets to pay investors back? Do you have extensions to that period? You don't really want to structure it where you're forced to have to get rid of it at a certain time frame, right? Because if the market's terrible at that point in time, you know, and you happen to coincide with it, you don't really want that. What is your flexibility there? So there's all these decisions that need to get made along the way on the capital structure that that go into uh, the chances of or the the likelihood of success for for a manager and their investors. Well, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. I mean, especially right now with, you know, <laughs> cap rates on things like commercial real estate just getting squeezed in a vice. If you're forced into a liquidation scenario, especially, you know, in, in the market right now, I mean, granted, we're seeing stabilization of commercial debt to an extent. But, you know, if you have, you know, if you were getting into deals, you know, two, three years ago and you have, you know, if you were to do this thing right now, I mean, you might as well just, you know, drop a 20 ton brick on your cap rate. It's going to be kind of hard to, you know, justify that to your investors of saying, okay, well, we're out now. What your rate of return now is going to be in the, and, you know, you were, you were, you were looking at 10 and 12, well, get welcome, welcome to two to three. Uh, You know, it's tough for that. But one thing you mentioned that I found really interesting, again, coming from my experience of a lot of these types of investments being, you know, basically closed, you know, you're in it and then it returns when it returns, when it returns. And when the underlying asset sells, there you go. I never really, you know, thought of this, you know, from something that has a little bit more liquidity. Now, are these funds, Is again, is this a spectrum where you might have a pooled investment fund where let's say I buy into it and tomorrow I say, you know what, I, you know, I, I decided I want to sell this back. Um, I want to redeem it out. Um, you know, I would anticipate that probably doesn't happen, but is there like a legal amount of time these things have to be locked up? Or again, is it something where you could say, you know what, I want to bring people in everything. I'm assuming that kind of thing would be better for maybe someone running like a dedicated, like securities trading platform or something where there's a lot of turnover and you can, you know, you can redeem and liquidate, yes. you know, the more tangible assets up is a little tougher. Can you speak to, to that a little bit? Yeah, I think, you know, and first of all, I'll give you my normal disclaimer. I'm not a securities lawyer and don't pretend to be one and don't give legal advice. But of course, I've dealt with many securities lawyers over, you know, 30 years and have asked all the questions. And so everything I would say to you is my best understanding, which I'm fairly sure is accurate. But um, uh, yes, there is a a minimum time frame. 12 months is kind of what what the on a reg D fund anyway. Where, where the investor has, you can't allow the investor to have a unilateral right to the money, you know, prior to 12 months. And then even after 12 months, Alex, typically the structure is such that it's a best efforts basis, basically, like the, the investor can request a redemption. And and some some funds and a lot of them I've done say would have say a 24 or a 36 month lockup period. So you cannot request a redemption for 12, 24, 36. That's kind of up to the manager at the very beginning to make that determination. And then after that period of time, there's all, and again, you can do it different ways. It could request 50% or only allow a certain percentage of the total fund to be redeemed in a given year. It, there's there's all variations of this stuff. 
but usually then it's the the investor has the ability to request a redemption, but the manager doesn't have to honor it unless they think that it's in the best interest of the fund to do so. To your other part of your question and to your point, yes, you're accurate. Certain types of assets are much more conducive to an open-ended fund where, where you do have redemption capabilities. And, and typically, you have things like, and, and we focus exclusively, uh, Alex, on, on real estate asset-based funds. So people could do them, to your point, on commercial debt or accounts receivable or you know, other types of assets that might have more liquidity to them. But in the in the real estate asset-based world, I would say the most liquid type of fund typically would be mortgage pool funds where mm -hmm. you're making first trust deeds. And particularly when you're doing them on flips and things that turn pretty quickly, because there your velocity of money is much higher. So you have new money coming in, you have deals that have paid off. You can use that money coming back in to either make new deals or to honor redemption requests. And that's typically in the judgment of the manager. Yeah. And, and for that part of the thing, especially if you're buying like secondary market notes, like you're buying a huge tape of these things. I mean, you're going to keep the, keep the good ones, sell the dogs out. So, you know, you're going to be getting cash flow in, then you have that's right. all that stuff. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. And that's, again, just from my perspective of not dealing a whole lot in this realm, which what I find you know, <laughs> interesting about talking to someone like you is just the, the flexibility that that gives you. And especially kind of tying this back into the reason that someone might want to do this is that, you know, this stuff allows you as the, you know, again, going from the fund manager kind of kind of aspect, you know, you've let's say you've syndicated deals, but now you say, okay, well, you know, this has a lot of, you know, there's a lot of, you know, water to wade through. If I can, you know, kind of eliminate that, if I can, you know, get on this boat and, you know, kind of steer it in the right direction and make the decisions a little bit more unilaterally, things would go a lot better. And again, that's kind of an interesting aspect of it, of, you know, being able to to kind of make those decisions and do that. Now, one thing that kind of popped into my head, going a little bit back to the beginning of the conversation is you have directives that are basically built into this pooled investment fund. You know, you can set it as broad or as narrow as you want. I'm sure there's a sweet spot for everything, you know, especially from the investor side where they come and say, hey, you know, you've done really good in, uh, let's say, uh, the commercial debt space. But in this, it says that you can invest in everything from cryptocurrency to uh, burial vaults. Maybe I don't want something that allows you that much discretion. But is there anything, um, you know, that would say that, you know, can can these kind of funds invest into other funds that might have different directives or like how far down the can these things branch off a lot? Is there kind of safeguards and protections against that? Or again, does it always fall down to the investor doing their due diligence, reading the documents and then, you know, making sure that they're abided by? Yeah, I, th I think what you just said there is accurate. An investor needs to really do their own homework, do their due diligence, read the documents, understand what the manager can and cannot do. And even then, to be you know candid, I mean, if a manager was to start making investments in things that were outside the mandate, it can be very difficult for an investor to even realize that that's happening, right? Because these are pretty opaque uh vehicles. The, the manager has no requirement to provide reporting to the investors. All they really got to do is give them a K-1 at the end of the year, right? So it, it becomes a self-imposed requirement. And, and to some degree, it's increasingly a market uh, acceptance requirement that even in these, these um, private, you know, illiquid real estate funds, quarterly reporting or at least periodic reporting is much more common than it used to be. 
but these are small managers, Alex. I mean, a lot of times it's two and three person shops. I mean, there's not, they don't have a lot of bandwidth to write a bunch of reports and produce the kind of, you know, fancy material that, that, you know, Schwab or Fisher or, you know, some, you know, Raymond James or Goldman Sachs or somebody like that's going to produce. Right. So managers, I'd say investors need to be very careful. I'd say, know your manager, do as much homework as you can. You know, there's a lot of things that a, an investor can do, but it's they're opaque investments. You got to really make sure you're picking your manager wisely. Yeah. And that's kind of where, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, Verivest, um, you know, the other of what you do kind of assist with that kind of aspect of the administration of these things, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Verivest is a fund administration business. And basically once the manager, I mean, we we provide advisory work to help people set it up right in the first place. Once they launch, we provide ongoing fund administration, which is different than fund management. We're not picking and choosing the assets that they're investing in, right? They're the manager, but we are administering it, meaning we're tracking the financial performance of the of the fund itself and calculating the allocations to the investors, calculating capital account statements and so forth. So we, of course, I recommend, but I, and I mean, it's clearly not just for us to get the business, but fund fund accounting in a pooled fund format is almost never the specialty of a real estate person you know people who get the bug as you put it for real estate do it because they love real estate not because they understand pooled fund accounting right and pooled fund accounting can be very challenging when you're buying if you're buying assets at different points in time and you're bringing in investors at different points in time how do you allocate the income from these various assets to the investors, all of which came in at a different point in time, right? That, oh, yeah. that, is, that, that is very sophisticated pooled fund accounting that most real estate people don't really understand how to do. Yeah, you say omnibus to a, a real estate guy and they start looking for a greyhound. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, it's and it's, and that's not the fault of anyone. You know, it's you know, everyone should have yes. their specialty. Someone that that's is, right. you know, pretends to be so good at everything. I would much prefer to have someone that understands their shortcomings and saying, okay, I know real estate like the back of my hand, but there's a reason I have a CPA is because I get a receipt and I might as well just burn it immediately upon touching it. You know, that's I think a really important aspect of, you know, why I like to talk to people like you is that say, hey, look, there's an interesting way of doing this. Here's another way of looking at it. And here's, you know, obviously if you understand the, you know, kind of expansive nature of, and again, use picking on real estate saying, okay, you go from one, two, three, four to, you know, here five with the, you know, pooled fund. Okay. Hey, you know, there's a lot of other stuff you need to understand, especially when it comes to, you know, not just getting all of your investors at once, plugging everyone in, you know, you don't have a sliding scale of saying, okay, well, when did they come in? Who's getting what payout? What's the rate of return? And what's the return on capital of someone that's been vested in the fund from day one versus the new investor that's coming in? You know, you, right. you're not allocating all the these capital and returns equally, which again, I think is, is a big hurdle for this. Um, you know, again, if my understanding, it's not just, you know, everyone, okay, great. You've invested 50, this person invested hundred, everyone came in at the same time. You have to look at this from a whole new lens, that, um, which, which is, uh, which is really pretty interesting. Now, kind of, again, kind of getting towards the end of this, because I could talk to you probably till five o'clock about this. I find it interesting, but my marketing team, you know, will get angry at me if I run these things for three hours, but <clears throat> Um, you know, when it comes to 
the life cycle of these things, because I think that's always important to understand, you know, life cycles of, of everything. Now, do these funds typically have a general life cycle or can they be very open-ended or is it again, kind of what we talked about all based on the nature of the investment? You know, if you're doing something, can these things just run open-ended or, you know, kind of give me an idea of what the general life cycle of a pooled investment fund looks like. Yeah, I think they if it's open-ended, they are an evergreen fund. They they don't have any specific sunset date and they can go on indefinitely. Uh, and many do. Um, in some cases, if you in, run the end of your useful life or the market changes on whatever the investment strategy was, that might precipitate a manager's decision to, to liquidate the assets and pay the investors back. Um, in a closed-ended fund, uh, which any direct ownership of real estate typically is is a closed-ended structure. Um, those those generally have a finite timeline going in. So you'd have a raise period, generally 12 to 24 months, where you're taking capital commitments and pulling the money in. You'd have an investment period, which overlaps with the raise period that's usually 36 to 48 months. And then most funds, Alex, would be between five and seven years. And then often they'll have uh, one or two extension periods where if they aren't able to sell the assets or it's not a good time to do that, the manager can extend the raise period unilaterally, after which it would require the approval of the investor. So I, I'd say closed-ended fund, five to 10 years is kind of the norm. Um, Open-ended fund, it can go on indefinitely. Most will have some, will reach some point where the market has changed and they'll, they'll eventually liquidate and pay the investors back. Okay, great. I think that's... Uh... Kind of, I think coming into the life cycle of these things is kind of a good place to uh, put a bookend on this. Now, again, you know, indicating that, you know, you definitely can help people to, again, you're not going to help people and say, hey, you know, hey, you should be investing in this and here's how you should set your numbers. But the administration of these things, I think, is where the real complexity comes in. I, you know, if you understand the underlying investment, I think putting together, you know, again, with the attorneys, okay, hey, here's what I want to do. Here's how much money I need. Here's what I want to be focusing on. That's, you know, kind of, again, can be done on the front end. But the administration of these things, again, sounds insanely complex. Um, and being able to have a more packaged view for their investors, you know, does nothing except to, you know, raise the, you know, appearance and, you know, legitimacy of what you're doing. So, you know, if people want to get in touch with you, they're interested in learning more about specifically how to, you know, kind of set these things up in a, you know, polished manner, if you will, how can they get in touch with you? Yeah, well, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, uh, and my email address is matt.burke at fairwayamerica.com uh, or veribus.com. But the, the basic model, Alex, that we do is we help the advisory work. We try to help people set it up right in the first place. And again, regardless of they come with their own strategy, right? And regardless of your strategy, if it's real estate based, how do we set up a fund that's going to be the best match for your strategy and your investor base as possible? Set up the advisory work. They turn into admin clients. We set up, we do the ongoing admin. And then on the Fairway America side, we look to invest in and alongside these managers. So we our, our investment strategy is to find managers that are launching funds that we like and to come in on the GP side along with them and help them grow and scale that business. So uh, that's our model, just looking for good managers, people who want to set up pool funds, do it properly in the first place, do it properly on an ongoing basis and are looking for capital to help them grow. Fantastic, Matt. I really do appreciate your time today. Thanks everyone else for joining us for another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney and thank you for joining us. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. 
Want to hear more episodes of The Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.